Hello and welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. We're back. Uh, we've had a uh, long, hot summer. Well, no, maybe a long one, but not a, certainly not a hot one. But uh, there's actually been quite a lot of political heat over this period. And so we're going to review what's been going on the past few weeks and look ahead at the restart of states meetings uh, from early September. I'm James Fuller and with me today is Matt Fallais. And as I say, we're going to look through some of the front pages and indeed inside pages uh, in one case uh, of what's happened over the past few weeks. So, Matt, uh, looking at the papers in kind of semi-chronological order, um, we started post-Island Games uh, looking at sports funding. And of course, that's an issue that's still rolling on today. Yeah, very much. I mean, education, sport and culture were under quite a lot of pressure, weren't they, to um, reverse their original decision, if that's if that's the way to put it, uh, to cut funding to the, the Sports Commission um, uh, originally in half and then uh, by two thirds. Um, and uh, it, there's obviously been negotiation not only between ESC and the S Sports Commission, but also involving PNR. And ESC's position now is that they, they're going to propose a slight increase in Sports Commission funding. Now, politically, presumably what, what has either been negotiated or the position that's emerged is that ESC is going to be able to play its proper role in advocating for, for sport and sports funding while PNR tries to kind of hold the line on budget restraint and ultimately the states uh, I think in October now will, will end up having to make the decision um, but it looks to me as if as if the the kind of cause of budget restraint is is being taken on by PNR which politically gives ESC a bit of cover and allows them then to argue for, for more sports funding. I think I've heard somebody say in relation to that debate you know it will be for the states to decide I mean it's any kind of fiscal discipline it seems to always fall at this hurdle, you know, of, of public pressure. You know, a committee decides to cut some cut a budget. Somebody complains. Everybody caves in. Yeah, I mean, th this assembly is really interesting in terms of spending because it, it started life. It looked as if it would be quite a um, a conservative assembly, didn't it? In in terms of public spending, actually, public spending over the last three years has increased at a faster rate than it has for twenty years or more. And I think that often is the reason, actually, that, that committees have good intentions around budget restraint. Their ideas then meet uh, some public resistance and committees then concede quite easily. And, and that's happened quite a few times. And to some extent, it looks like it might happen on sports funding. I mean, it, it's now, I would think, uh, highly unlikely the states are not going to back ESC's latest position and and vote in favour of additional sports funding. Let's move on. The um, uh, one issue that, that came out of the July states debate was a bit of a uh, storm in a food caddy, wasn't it, over um, uh, the, how to treat the, uh, Guernsey's food waste ongoing. Um, so where are we on that one now? Because I believe that is still being chewed over, excuse the puns. Yeah, it is. Deputy Carl Meerveld was behind this idea of a raquette because he was very unhappy with the tender process for the, 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 the next food waste contract. 
Um, my understanding is that he still intends to go ahead with the raquette. Uh, we're going to have a story on this l- later in the week, and which I'm kind of trying to piece together at the moment. But I think there is likely to be a, a, a debate about that, or it might broaden out into um, awarding monopoly contracts, because that, that appears to be where Deputy Mirveld is now shifting his focus. So rather than this individual uh, case, which frankly always seemed to be a bit, you know, after the event, you know, the the, the stable door was, uh, sorry, the horse was long gone. Uh, and meanwhile, we were fiddling with the lock on the stable door, weren't we, in this yeah. case? I mean, whether Deputy Mirveld is, is shifting his focus because he now realises that the first issue he raised, uh, you know, isn't going to be very productive territory, I don't know. But I think, you know, he does genuinely have this concern that the state should not be issuing contracts which provide private companies with monopolies. I mean, I haven't studied it very closely, but I think if you looked right across the public sector, you'd find quite a lot of those contracts. And I'm not sure it's going to be possible to avoid that in every case. But it looks he he has told me that, that he will he is pursuing his raquette. It's with the law officers and there is likely to be a state's debate in what what could be a, an extremely busy October meeting. Taking that to a logical conclusion, though, I mean, if, if there is a contract for cleaning of schools, for example, there's a tender process, 10 companies uh, participate in that, one gets the gig. You don't have, oh, we must share this out so every company can have two schools each. No, I mean... I mean it, it all seems a bit fanciful to be It honest. does a bit. I mean, I guess he wants to shift the argument at least as far as he can so that where possible the states is not providing monopoly contracts uh and he's you know he's working with a group of deputies who who are very uh, you know pro market in their outlook and i think he he wants to generate that kind of debate in the states about um how much uh you know what 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 kind of role does the states have in facilitating um, private business, which of course is also the subject of, of a story which um, we have published off the back of the um, electricity strategy, which is coming up for debate, where the Treasury lead, Deputy Mark Hellier, is is making the case that he, he wants the states to be much more muscular in uh, partially or fully privatising states' assets. And he listed Orany and the dairy and Guernsey Electricity as, as possible targets. Now, they're all under the oversight of the State's Trading Supervisory Board. Deputy Peter Roffey is the president of that board. And when he stood for election three years ago, it was very much on the basis of not privatising states-owned trading um, operations. Now, whether Deputy Hellier is going to try and provoke a states debate on all of that remains to be seen. Uh, But I think that might become more of an issue as we... Uh, you know, as as we move along in the second half of this state's term, it it is a big deal that one, and I think a, a challenge there is I I struggle to see how you're going to make massive difference through privatisation unless you absolutely go all the way and sell shares, you know, and actually you know uh, sell off the company and make some money. It, it's hard to see. I think how. A, a simple tweaking of commercialization could make a massive difference. So maybe you know, Guernsey Post and Co might argue uh, otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the other thing is with privatization is w- rightly or wrongly, there is quite a lot of skepticism publicly about the, the sale of Guernsey Telecoms 20 odd years ago, isn't there? Mm. Um, this is not the place to kind of go go into whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision. But there there is a very sizable body of opinion which says, even if it was the right thing to do, uh, you know, it was undersold. 
um, and it hasn't worked out as well as it might have. And and I think anyone trying to privatise states-owned trading companies uh, it faces a, a, an uphill struggle in the, in the states at the present time. Deputy Helly does make a good point, I thought, though, in, in his argument uh, in, in today's newspaper as, as we speak today, um, that uh, in fact, the, the states n- nowadays always comes up with great ideas and then thinks how it's going to fund them rather than saying we've got to consider you know how big our pockets are and then cut our cloth accordingly. And it's been a running sore, which I know he's spoken about previously, but it's been going on for years and years, isn't it? You know, we come up with the idea and then think about where we're going to find the money. Yeah, and and sometimes it's even worse than that because the states have been a bit in the habit of approving strategies and then not being able to deliver them either because the funding isn't there or, uh, you know, other um, human, even if the funding's there, they you know, sometimes can't find the human resources to deliver things. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is something we've discussed quite a lot that the, the, the States has uh, a bit of an obsession with strategies and plans um, and, and sometimes struggles to convert those into action. Mm. Uh, let's move on to education because they've been in the news for a number of reasons uh, over the uh, over the holidays um uh, primarily of course the hardy annual for hard-pressed uh, newspaper news editors uh two two days in august you can re- guarantee you've got a front page on exam results um not a particular yeah, okay uh, re- you yeah, bounce back from covid but not a particularly successful one no, I mean, everybody expected exam results to um, decline a bit because the way in which they had been um, exam uh, performance had been measured in the COVID years was was different and, and, and inevitably was, you know, looked a bit artificially impressive, if you like. Um, but no, if you look across the state's maintained sector, you've got just a, a fraction over half of students getting level four that's like the old c and above in english and maths um and i i don't think there's anybody in education who who would resist the argument that for a jurisdiction of our um wealth and as reliant as we are on human capital uh that those results don't need to improve um we're doing uh, an interview with the director of education nick hines and it will be interesting to get his detailed uh, analysis of those results um, and place them in some kind of context. But I think, it, you know, if, if you're if you're a, a, sat there as a as a professional member of staff at ESC or, or you're on the committee, I think you you know, the, the, objective number one has got to be to improve exam results across our jurisdiction because they they really aren't good enough, and that is not. A recent problem that that is a, a you know a, a long-standing problem. But the big question is, what are you going to do to reform to try to bring about the, the you know an improvement in results? There are so many benchmarks nowadays for what constitutes exam result success. Uh, but you know you've mentioned maths and English, you know grade C and above in, in, in old language. I mean that essentially is the built for anybody who wants to do anything in 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 with further education or indeed kind of office based maths and english is just the building block to get through the door isn't it you know it is the absolute basics uh, that that one requires and to see nearly 50% of the high school population failing in that respect is it, it's just it's not a um, not a good look is it the the, the underlying 
issue it can be understood by comparing us with England, right? So for quite a long time now, our results, whichever measure you use, our results in, in, in public exams have been either on a par with or fractionally above the national average in England. But if you consider some of the social and economic problems that you know quite large parts of England have, really, we ought to be quite a long way ahead of the English average. And, and until we can shift to that kind of position, you know, I think most people in education would accept there's, there's quite a big, uh, you know, quite a long journey to travel. Yeah, it strikes me as, as a parent that, that that maths and English qualification is not only you know the building block for your future, but it's also a kind of benchmark for self-esteem. Uh, and I think that r involves both the children themselves and indeed the schools. You know, if if your performance in that area is good, you feel good about yourselves. The teachers feel good about their success. You know, everything else. I'm not disregarding any other subject, but you know, it's it's um, you know, they just support uh, underpin that maths and English result. But that is that is probably the critical one. Anyway, uh, a school which isn't so focused on results but is a focus of attention is uh, Little Herm School. Um, we started the holidays knowing that that was uh, a, a, well closing uh, had did close. Uh, uh, yet, you know, here we are. New term starts next week, and the uh, home school's future still in uh, still in the balance. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's quite courageous of ESC, isn't it? Because they are well, they're always in the in the news, and uh, to some extent, in the firing line. And they've got you know, huge challenges at the moment. We're not we're talking about exam results, but they've got the their their um transformation of secondary and post 16 education with this huge price tag and several building projects associated with it which they're going to have to try and argue for again in the states in october now and in the middle of all of that they've decided to take on this issue of home school which oh, they didn't particularly need to i don't think it's going to be any great financial saving if there's any at all uh what they're saying is that um essentially home school is too small to provide um the the kind of you know quality education that, that students in herm deserve uh but at least seven states members um are quite aggrieved with this idea of a of a one-year trial closure which i think they they think is is uh yeah a slightly sort of synthetic arrangement that if it closes for a year it's never going to reopen again and they are arguing that it should remain open uh, that will be the subject of debate in the States next week. ESC have come in with um, a late amendment, which looks like an, an attempt to kind of take ownership of the raquette. Um, it's, I mean, it's not a hugely significant political issue, I don't think, um, but it is going to be a, a very interesting debate in the States. And to some extent, it will set the mood music for the uh, the capital debate in October, where... It looks still as if HSC's, you know, £100 million plus capital project and ESC's £100 million plus capital project are going to end up head to head uh, for limited states funds. And the kind of degree of confidence there is in certainly in, in one of those committees, I think, will be tested to some extent in the states next week on this debate on Herm School. Mm. Uh, and... Also on education, we've got an issue which uh, popped up in the beginning of the of the school holidays about one member who's um, struggling to get on with the rest, the rest of his committee. I mean, arguably it's not a new story, a new story that Andy Cameron is uh, is at odds with the rest of his committee, but this one seemed to be uh, particularly uh, interesting. 
Yeah, well, just bizarre. I, I, mean, I can't remember any other circumstances where a deputy has been uh, ruled as having a conflict of interest, which means they should leave committee meetings simply because they take a different view to the rest of the committee on on an issue of policy and have voted differently in the states. I mean, uh, I'm glad that rule wasn't applied when I was in the states because I wouldn't have got into many committee meetings. But the same is true as lots of states members. I mean, it's it's like it's fundamental in our system of government that members of committees are able to take a different line from their committee in public on on policy issues. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, he has found himself. Um, you know, thrown out of committee meetings as a result of it. Now, ESC say, well, they took advice from the law officers uh, and um, the advice indicated there was a conflict of interest, so they didn't have much choice but to, you know, make sure he wasn't in, in committee meetings. I, I, I don't know exactly what the current position is. We're going to catch up with Deputy Cameron about that uh, in the next couple of days. Um, but it provoked... I, I was on leave during this period, but I think it provoked a letter, didn't it, from, was it 13 yes, or 14 right. yeah. states yeah. asking ESC to reverse that decision? Um, I'd be surprised if they're able to, you know, hold to that in the long term. It must be quite an unpleasant experience for, for, for Deputy Cameron and his colleagues at ESC, because clearly there is no love loss between them. Um, we know that that one member has has absented herself from some meetings where Deputy Cameron has been present. Obviously, there are others where he isn't allowed in the room. Uh, must be quite a difficult working relationship, but he appears to be. You might think he, the simplest thing would be for him to leave the committee, but he appears quite determined to stick it out. And and in a sense, he may have won the argument over sports funding, where he's taken a different uh, um, position to the to the committee, and, and they are now backing his position. Well, indeed, and wasn't excluded on that basis. No. Um, I mean, this is another... A storm in a teacup, but arguably, you know, potentially good for education, but bad for politics and politics watchers that it happened over the summer holidays. Because I think had there been more, uh, more opportunity as in a state's meeting for people to, you know, to actually air this and say, what is going on? You know, rather than write a letter and be told, yes, we'll consider it our next meeting in the beginning of September. Uh, you know, it, th this actually would have come to the fore and I think be dealt with in a much stronger way than it probably is going to be in that you know, everybody's going to kiss and make up at some point fairly soon and, um, you know, and, and normal service will resume. Yeah, I mean, th this this state's assembly is, is quite distinctive in the sense that there is much less challenge of states' committees from other deputies. Um, I mean, th there are a large number of deputies who... Uh, you know, a, appear to have almost no opinions on anything related to politics. Um, and, you know, we, we find that sometimes when, when we're, you know, trying to get comments. Some, sometimes we get criticism that we're, you know, we're quoting the same deputies. And the reason for that is because there is a relatively small number of deputies who appear to hold, you know, strong, interesting opinions about political it, issues. It seems that some of them don't consider themselves to have a scrutiny role of, other, of others. It's simply, you know, I'm on my committees, we're getting the job done. You know, this is my entire focus. Yeah, I think there is much more loyalty to committees in this states than there ever has been in the past. You could argue that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I think it's definitely a development in this states that's quite distinctive. And it, it does mean that there are quite a lot of issues that come up where in the past committees would have would have been... Uh, you know, they'd have really faced a lot of opposition and challenge from other deputies. 
uh, and now they're able to brush deputies aside quite easily. Uh, it will be very interesting to see if that is that's now a kind of long term trend, but it's certainly something that's a, that's emerged in this state. I mean, arguably, the letter signed by fifteen states members or whatever it was said quite a bit. If you have a letter signed by twenty one states members, that's a much clearer direction for, for, to a committee that actually maybe what it's doing is not right. Uh, whether Deputy Roffey, you know, kind of, you know, just said, I'm just going to get something in or whether he genuinely couldn't find 20 odd supporters, uh, perhaps is, is an interesting, uh, interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if you're a deputy, it can be quite effective, this idea of getting signatories uh, on a letter to try and persuade a committee to do things. But I think the lesson probably is don't publish your intentions until you know you've got a majority. And if you don't, if you haven't got a majority, you know, rip your letter up because if you if you declare your hand and you 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 can only you've only got a minority support in the states, it kind of emboldens a committee to um, you know, to to tell you to go away and mm. and take no notice of your letter, doesn't it? Talking about letters and and whether the, this one should or shouldn't have been ripped up, but surely the the major talking point of the summer has been a uh, a, a letter, a rather long one, to be fair, from the chief minister, which we serialised uh, in the paper last week, and uh, I think it caused a great deal of um, uh, of, of discussion. Uh, how did you read it, Matt? Uh, well, I, I read it um, on holiday in France, which uh, maybe was the best way in which to read it because. You could you know, some some distance from it because I thought, I mean, yeah, you turned it into a, a kind of trilogy, uh, and and kept it running over several days. Uh, first of all, I thought it was quite an extraordinary um, intervention in public debate, if you like, from from the Guernsey's most senior politician, a, a very unusual type of intervention. You know, in a way, th this is what Deputy Furbrush does. You know, he uh, he doesn't really mind what he says. You know, he's quite, um, uh, you know, open in his opinions. And, he, you know, August was probably a, slightly a downtime. And he thought, I'm just going to get all these things off my chest. And I don't really care, if, you know, who I offend. And in a way, there's something quite refreshing and slightly probably old fashioned um, about just, you know, shooting from the hip. I think it was definitely a rebalancing as well, wasn't it? I mean, he's effectively saying, yeah, two of my biggest political opponents use these columns particularly to have a pop at me. Sod this, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a pop back, you know, uh, using exactly the same uh, channel. Yeah. And, and in fairness, you know, he is right to some extent that there are a number of people who are prepared to, uh, you know, just take pops at him and his committee and his leadership at every opportunity. Um, and it is when you're in a leadership position, it is very, very frustrating because in a way you're inhibited. You you can't reply in kind because if you do, then, you know, what's that phrase about wrestling with, with pigs and everyone's getting dirty? I mean, you're, the expectation is if you're in a leadership position that you take this very kind of statesman-like position, you rise above all of that. I think Deputy Furbrush, after three years of it, probably thought, you know, I'm not going to do that any longer. I mean, he is a bit of a street fighter as well, isn't he? So it won't have taken him yeah, much encouragement to uh, to write a letter like that. Now, how it lands with people, I think the people who supported him previously will probably, you know, think good on you for speaking out. And his critics will probably think, uh, you know, what an unstatesmanlike intervention. Uh, you know, you're merely confirming the, the, the criticism we've made of you in the past. I don't think it will shift people's opinions about him or his leadership. 
I do wonder, though, whether he has become, I mean, it's a five-year state's term, which is, you know, unusual. It's normally four years. Yeah. So you, the states would, would now be in the final year of its term. I do wonder whether Deputy Furbrush is becoming, if not exactly demob happy, but, you know, a bit less interested in a kind of building um, a collegiate corporate states and just, uh, you know, saying the things he wants to say and he thinks Guernsey needs to hear. And if st some states members don't like it, then it's too bad. I mean, what, what effect that's going to have on his leadership of the Assembly for the next two years remains to be seen. But I think maybe we are moving into that kind of era. To an extent, it doesn't really matter what what he says in, in that regard, because yeah, the, the States is, yeah, as you say, on the, on the way out. And I think in the minds of many Islanders, probably half gone as well, you know, that they've almost... It's not that people have gone particularly anti-government. I just think they've lost any belief that this government is going to is going to deliver. Um, now, potentially, whether the government is going to deliver will, in any way, we'll probably know by the end of the calendar year. Yeah, I mean, where it does matter, perhaps, is that that we know that PNR are coming to the states with to make another attempt. I mean, almost certainly. Um, on GST, but 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 certainly um, to raise several tens of millions of pounds through through additional tax measures, and that is absolutely the kind of centerpiece of their five year program of work, and maybe a, a more cautious um, president of PNR, and that's not a criticism. Some people will celebrate his you know openness and shooting from the hip, others will criticise it, but maybe a, a more cautious president might have thought. You know, I need to spend most of the summer trying to rally support from a majority of my colleagues for, for what my committee is trying to do, uh, you know, rather than um, criticising, you know, my very well-established critics. And because PNR needs to do quite a lot of work, if it stands any chance at all, of getting its tax policy through the states. And it, if it doesn't get those, those tax policies through the states in what now appears to be October... You know, I think in a way it can take a step back and say, look, we've, we've tried to do the right thing. We've identified the size of the deficit. We've had the courage to come up with proposals that, you know, we think are quite well thought through. If the states don't want to know, then we can't do any more. And, and, you know, in the long run, the island will be worse off. They can take that position. But in a sense, you know, politics isn't about kind of looking yourself in the mirror and knowing that you acted in the right way. Really, if you're in a position of leadership, it's about trying to persuade a majority of your colleagues to go along with you. And I don't think it will do the island any favours if PNR doesn't, you know, really try and engage with that and get its programme of work through the states. You know, it, it's not really any use if it's correct, but defeated. You no. know, if it's going to lead, it's going to have to persuade a majority of, of states members to go with it. It now, I mean, the committee now seems to effectively have a joint focus, doesn't it? It's not only GST, which you know, has been in the margins for quite a while. The big focus, the absolutely visible one, is the purchase of fields and sites for housing. Uh, you know, that has been a rumbling theme th throughout the summer. We've seen fields bought at the King Edward VII for, for no uh, discernible purpose at this time. And now we're talking about, you know, actual investment in the Leal's Yard scheme uh, to get that rolling and put some key worker housing in it. I mean, this is clearly a focus. I think that the, the challenge for 
PNR and the states as a whole is is anybody going to have moved in by the time of the of the election in June 2025 and they have this uh, strategic housing oh. indicator which which suggests that is it something like 1700 ho- new homes need to be built by the end of 2027 but in the, in the many months since that decision was made I bet you could count on almost on the fingers of one hand the number of new buildings, you know, new homes that have gone up. So, uh, yeah, if the states are, are, are going to build or um, you know uh, provoke the building through a combination of public and private sector of of yeah, close to five hundred homes a year, there's going to have to be a, an enormous shift because it just isn't happening, is it? And what you've got now is this this continued escalation in um the price earnings ratio so the uh the the difference between average earnings and average house prices it's just going up and up and up to the point where the the housing specialist e and i recently brought in produced a very interesting report was saying that your, your average house price is something like three or four times greater than it ought to be in a kind of sustainable housing market. That That is an extraordinary multiple if you think about it. So you've got that going on and you've got this blockage in the supply of new social housing. So these two things have come together to create a perfect or, or an imperfect storm. And yes, I mean, I think after that debate on tax and GST happens in October and the states make their decisions about which capital projects to back, it would be no surprise if the kind of last 18, 21 months of this state's term is not dominated by more and more concern publicly about the housing crisis and the states arguably not not being able to respond, mm. um, you know, remotely adequately. And there will be a Lil's Yard debate by the end of the year. Frankly, if that doesn't go the way of pnr i would suspect that there will be no significant house building achieved um in the life of this government despite the you know the many words and indeed the action in terms of purchasing fields but you know purchasing fields doesn't lead to uh, builders moving in on the following monday does it no and you would have thought that this this issue would be the subject of of more focus in states debates wouldn't you i mean i it seems to me in previous states terms if this was the the kind of condition of the housing market, there would have been quite a number of deputies wanting to provoke debates about that, you know, coming forward with raquettes, trying to force committees to come forward with action plans. But there isn't very much of that. There there are, there's a lot of quite worthy statements about things that need to be done in relation to housing. Um, but people you know, on the ground, people are not seeing uh, more housing being built. It is fair to say that you know this is not a problem um, of this state's alone. Far from it. I mean, this this problem has has been building up um, for you know years, if not decades, in Guernsey. But it is getting worse. But as a result, this is a housing crisis inverted commas that, uh, unlike any other crisis that a state normally deals with, doesn't need to get quick get around the table and come up with an idea tomorrow to, to get a result um you know to me i would d- define a state's crisis as being we're going to lose tank ships and oil deliveries if we don't do something this week we're going to lose the chance to buy a ferry now whether that was a genuine crisis or not <laughs> who knows but you know we're going to lose that chance unless we do something the uk government is going to close us down over something unless we do something this week you know that those are the crises that that the states has has 
as had pops up on his plate and dealt with generally external crises an internal one which you know doesn't have a kind of uh you know there'll be people sleeping in in some people doorways uh shop doorways on uh, at the weekend if we don't deal with this it just always rumbles on, doesn't it? Yeah. And we always call it a crisis, but it's not a crisis in the way that the states would traditionally recognise a crisis. Yeah, I agree with that. And this is quite interesting because quite often there's criticism of our system of government that it's not nimble enough and it's not able to respond as uh, you know quickly or decisively as a more executive type system. Actually, when Guernsey faces a real crisis and you need a decision made in a matter of days, the state's performance is pretty good. Mm. If you think about, you know, what was done during the pandemic, if you think of going back to the purchase of Orony, the purchase of fuel tankers, you know, generally speaking... UK states, threats on beneficial ownership, you know, all yeah, those kind of things. The state's responds quite well in those uh, circumstances. Where the state struggles is where you need, you know, kind of much longer term policy making. It strikes me when the, when the issue is external or internal is the difference. Yeah, it could well be. I mean, it, it might be that there is just a, a different kind of discipline of decision making needed around those things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the big issue with housing, right, and I'm, I'm amazed that this doesn't make it into the States more often, is what does success look like in, in, in the housing market? You know, when, if it's a crisis now, when would it not be a crisis? And the big issue really is is um, the the multiple of the purchase price, isn't it? And and uh, E and I's housing consultants got right to the crux of that in their report. But what nobody in the states ever says, and I think this really ought to be the subject of of debate, is what are the various policy interventions designed to achieve? So if the if at the moment average house prices are sixteen times average earnings, and that's a crisis, well, what what are we going to get them down to then? Is but, it going to twelve, eight, four? Because the scale of intervention necessary to do that is absolutely massive. And I think in a way, the states play down the um, the difficulty of dealing with this issue by not focusing on what success would actually look like. Yeah, the tactic at the moment is to put more supply into the market, thereby bringing prices down. But I don't, honestly, I don't ever see that equaling negative equity for Guernsey homeowners. No, so I mean, it, it, you might the market might cool off, might stabilise for a few years, but it's still going to leave uh, average house price at fifteen times um, medium. Uh, medium, yeah. and I think this earning. is the problem because if the state said we're going to make all this intervention in the housing market, you know, we're going to provoke the building of thousands of new uh, homes, and at the end of it, in ten years, house prices will be uh, as affordable or unaffordable as they are today, everyone would throw their hands up and say, well, you know, that's not an achievement at all. But the difficulty of bringing, actually bringing down house prices relative to earnings, uh, which is what a large part of the population is actually after, you know, particularly so that it becomes more affordable for younger people. I mean, that is a hugely complex and difficult thing to achieve. Uh, the states don't always level with the public about that, I think. OK, so States is back in action next week. So let's have a look at what's coming up uh, over the next uh, few meetings. So uh, meeting next Wednesday, a day the schools go back. And on the agenda is Herm School, which we've already spoken about. Um, the electricity strategy, which we've only touched in passing. And once again, the airport runway. 
um, yeah, th- this looks like a bit of a monster meeting to uh, head back to, Matt. It does. I think it's pr- it'd probably be a three-day meeting. Um, and the rest, surely. Yeah, possibly. Some of the business might have to be adjourned. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, a couple of those issues are quite, uh, well, they're very strategic, aren't they? So, so no kind of immediate action, airport runway and electricity strategy. But there will be, I think, quite a lot of fierce debate, particularly about the electricity strategy. Because I think there is, reading between the lines, there's quite a lot of scepticism um, in PNR and probably some of PNR's natural supporters about the uh, the draft electricity strategy from ENI. There's going to be a, a, an element of challenge of it from Deputy Hellier, which we've been reporting on in the press. So I think that's going to be quite a substantial debate. Herm School, uh, in a sense, less substantial, but 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 probably quite a lengthy debate and as i say the the kind of the the underlying ground of uh, politically um around uh the confidence of the assembly in esc will will be i think quite uh quite revealing in in that debate how much net zero chat do you think there will be in the electricity strategy debate um well probably i mean a fair bit because that is uh you know quite central to um to to the you know ENI's agenda and and to the agenda. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you are concerned about a one point seven billion pound price tag, the natural way to tackle that is to go. I'm not so sure about this net zero uh, business and and Paris agreements and that kind of stuff. It is. I mean, I think the link between the energy objectives and the cost is going to be the actually the the central focus of the debate. Uh, and, um, you know, you said earlier, Deputy Hellier has made this criticism that the states are being asked to agree another strategy without understanding in much detail the, the likely cost. E&I's response to that is, well, if we continue to do what we're doing, it's going to be even more expensive than if we, you know, if we change course uh, around renewable energy. So, yeah, I, that is going to be the, the focus of a lot of debate. Mm, OK, so that's a monster one. Uh, I strongly suspect that some of that will hang over to the meeting at the end of September, which at the moment seems to have a scrutiny re- a review committee annual report and not much else. Yeah, and, and you get that a bit. Don't you famine and feast in states meetings. Um, but uh, it might, it's possible that some some of the items from, from next week may, may end up um, may end up held over. But if not, it will be quite a quiet meeting at the end of September before the the most monster meeting of all in October. Well, indeed, you need to clear the decks before the October meeting, which will look at capital prioritisation, government work plan, and essentially what are the states going to achieve in its final twenty months? I guess. Yeah. So there's going to be uh, we we understand there'll be PNR's revised tax proposals, probably centering around GST. Wait, well, what did that that alone took six days, didn't it? it when it was re- debated earlier this year. Um, on top of that, then the capital projects the states are going to prioritise for the the rest of this term and probably into next term. That's all to do with uh, you know the education's um, development plan and uh, the next phase of development at the Princess Elizabeth Hospital and big a big budget for for social housing. Uh, so so that there are hundreds of millions of pounds worth of projects and. Um, an increasingly limited pot of money to carry them out. So that is going to be uh, a, a very lengthy debate. And the because the, the states have delayed their debate on the government work plan, their kind of policy agenda for the rest of this term, that also is going to fall in October. So, I mean, there's no way all of that can be done in three weeks. I don't quite know what they're going to do with their uh, with their sitting days. But, but, but 
um, October and well into November, I should think, is going to be um, very busy and critical for this state. And then you've got a budget and then you've got Leal's Yard housing uh, report before the end of the year. So uh, we're all going to be kept pretty busy in, in that period. So anyway, so it's time for us to uh, sign off now at this stage. But thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you again next week with the Shorthand States. And uh, until then, bye for now. See you next week.